they fired almost all of those producers. And the new producer called and invited me back out of the group that they had fired. Everything in me said no. Hmm. Out of my mouth came yes. And so I went into it trying to win the approval of people that I didn't know and didn't really need their approval. The opportunity to direct was gone. There was no one there anymore that was going to fight for me. And that was the only reason I really wanted to go back. As I woke up on the ground that day, these were the things going through my mind. This was no more stressful. It was no larger than the year before. There was nothing different, except I didn't have that support of the people. So now I was starting over trying to win approval. Welcome to The Practical Filmmaker, an educational podcast brought to you by the Filmmaker Institute and Sunscreen Film Festival, where industry professionals talk nuts and bolts and the steps they took to find their success today. Find the full transcripts and more at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. I'm your host, Tanya Musgrave, and I'm still finishing up that master's, but do not worry, there are some fantastic people coming up, production designers, outdoor filmmakers that grace the world of Banff Mountain Film Festival, an experimental art filmmaker, PAs who've headed up, uh, first team, editors, they're all on the docket, no worries. In the meantime, today, we're re-releasing an earlier episode. Back when the podcast was still called Dare to Hear, I had an amazing conversation with Corey Pollard about balance in the industry. This was recorded in April of 2020, so COVID had just reared its fantastic ugly head. He is an assistant director in the Directors Guild of America, and he's worked on shows such as Jack Ryan, Orville, 911, and also worked on the assassination of Gianni Versace. So I'll let him introduce himself further with his role in the industry. Hi, I'm Corey Pollard, and uh, I'm a grateful migrant film worker now for over 30 years. I work as an assistant director solving other people's problems. I'm the guy that is responsible for everything and in control of very little on a movie set or a television set. And I (laughs) seem to love that pressure. (laughs) That's fantastic. So like, all right, you've got to catch me up because the last time that I talked to you, it was about seven years ago and you had, (laughs) yeah, right. You had been ADing on the set of Nashville and you had a seizure and that is about the last place that I've left you. So what's happened in the last seven years for you? Well, the only solid answer I have about what happened on the set of Nashville was that it was not a seizure. It appeared to be a seizure, but they went through testing and realized that I did not have a seizure through the parameters of of what was affected by whatever it was. But what definitely happened is that I seemed to have passed out or fainted and had some spasms in my body that, that led everybody to believe that that's what it was. And I am discovering now, many years later, the reality that that perhaps was a complete overload from being raised in the uh, environment that I was raised in and then diving right directly into this position of responsibility in the motion picture industry, motion picture industry as the guy responsible for everything in control of nothing. Mm. And that uh, it was probably a stress response because I have continually put myself in these really uh, response. I'm over overly responsible and have a deep need for people's approval. So I don't say no and I just deliver. <laughs> At whatever level. And apparently that's a very good trait as an assistant director, but not for your human psyche if you uh, don't have the rest of your life in order. <laughs> yeah, it's easy It's easy to be exploited. So I right. want you to expand on that a little bit because sure. you are writing a book now and um, I was able to read the intro to it. And you had mentioned a little bit about, you know, how you grew up and stuff, but a lot of that had involved... Uh, addiction and that kind of thing. So expand. Yeah. Well, basically what's amazing to me is that you reach out to me at the time that I'm working deeply on this 
because of COVID, I have time every day to sit with a writer's group and, and just do the work. It's literally my adventure from Walla Walla, Washington as a bumpkin to ending up in the film Stand By Me as a Teenager to then diving behind the camera at 18 and, and working my way through. And so essentially what it is is sort of a Quentin Tarantino-esque nonlinear timeline with the impact of these certain events that have happened in my life because I've had so many amazing things happen in my life and then so many things that are considered trauma when they happen to you at a young age, witnessing a man jump off of a building, having my father never address that it happened and only just in my late 40s being able to ask him the question whether or not we saw that. Uh, being raised by him being an alcoholic and a drug addict for many years growing up. My mother growing up in an alcoholic home. None of this is their fault, but I was the recipient of the lack of life skill, the recipient of poor communication, and didn't learn how to stand up for myself. And so through that event in Nashville, it began to make me wonder, why do I say yes to everything? I had been in such an incredible position on season one of Nashville. I was surrounded by producers and people that I really cared about and that really cared about me. We were moving toward getting me to direct in the second season. And at the end of the time of the first season, they fired almost all of those producers. And the new producer called and invited me back out of the group that they had fired. Everything in me said no. Hmm. But I, out of my mouth came yes. Yeah. And so I went into it trying to win the approval of people that I didn't know and didn't really need their approval. The opportunity to direct was gone. There was no one there anymore that was going to fight for me. And that was the only reason I really wanted to go back. As I woke up on the ground that day, these were the things going through my mind. This was no more stressful. It was no larger than the year before. There was nothing different except I didn't have that support of the people. So now I was starting over trying to win approval. And that occurred to me that maybe that could be it. The doctor and I began to discuss it. And he thought, yeah, that's really nice that as a man, you could actually admit that maybe it was stress. And that was about as far as that went that year. I just went through the depression of being removed from the show, coming back to Los Angeles. And until they could prove that it wasn't a uh, seizure, I could not drive. Mm. I thought for sure my career was going to be over, that mm. I would never have another opportunity based on the fact that I fish flopped on a set in front of 60 people on a tech scout, mm. but the exact opposite happened. You know, I think you read in the intro that, it, you know, so many coincidences from the moment of that event in Nashville. And I don't believe in coincidences. <laughs> I literally had an experience where this was actually literally happened probably two days after we spoke the last time as I'm remembering <laughs> it now. I, I, my wife was freaking out. She was freaking out about the cost of an air conditioner and all these things that were coming as a result of this. And I remember saying to her on the phone, honey, it's, it's going to be okay. There are people in the world that don't have electricity or water. We're going to be okay, even in the valley in the summertime. And I got a text from the president of Compass College of the Cinematic Arts asking if I was okay, that she had heard through the grapevine that something had happened. And wondering if it, if it was medically possible if I could now come and be the keynote speaker. And it was a paid speaking gig. It was a really exciting thing. It's something I really enjoyed doing. And it was the exact amount of money that my wife had just quoted to me that they were going to pay me Get out. to fix the air conditioning. I'm like, oh my gosh. So from there, I end up speaking. Then I end up spending a year kind of 
teaching and doing other things, a little bit online, a little bit of different things. And then I went right back into the fold and giving all this energy toward all these other projects that are fantastic. All those projects on IMDb, I'm pretty blown away. Most often when I look at that, I cannot believe I was a part of any of it. Mm-hmm. But I stopped taking care of me and setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. And it took until this year to be kind of step back into a place of going, wow, this industry will take as much as I'm willing to give. And ultimately, no one really cares. I care about the projects. I care about the writers, the actors, and all the people involved. But I might have an unhealthy need for approval and uh, be overly responsible and need to look at this, Hmm. if that makes any sense. No, 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 that's incredible. So it's been a lot more of I mean, because the the professional journey that you've taken the last seven years is quite notable as well. Yeah, that's what's crazy. (laughs) But it seems to me that uh, the book that you were mentioning, which, by the way, does it have a title? And when would people? I don't know. I'll have to just let you know when I actually get the the titles out there. We're about three quarters of the way through with the book right now, and I'm excited about it. Nice, nice, uh... nice. But so the the reality of what you just said is the years, the intervening years, were notable and some things that changed about that, that that really as i woke up and continued to have sort of after being 20 plus years of kind of forest gumping my way through the business i call it i think i may have used that term with you before mm-hmm. where i just sort of have made it through really tough personalities really rough situations with oh stupid is what's stupid is? well what if we tried this you know and and i had a, an agent pursue me and I thought, I don't need an agent. I don't want an agent. I'd rather not give up a percentage of my money because I just seem to get repeat business. And these repeat business is fantastic. These people are all people that I care about. First, I ignored him and I refused his you know, email requests and all this stuff. And I, and I finally said, why am I on your radar? <laughs> and he goes, because of the quantity and the quality of your work. And I don't represent any assistant directors who work on the quality of projects that you work on. And I said, why do you think I need an agent? Because I, I get most of my work from a repeat call. Someone calls me directly and says, hey, buddy, we really would like your help. He goes, I think I can get you into more rooms than you would ever imagine. I think I can get you into other meetings. And I'm like, okay, maybe I, maybe I do want to expand my horizons a little bit. So I did it. And then came the Jack Ryan. Yeah. And that was the one that defined for me the reality that I was now in a space where the boundaries that I needed to create in my own life were more important than the projects. And that was a real eye-opening moment for me because I had given up so much all the time to just acquiesce, to serve the project, to serve, uh, to serve this faithful God thing that I believe in by serving other people. And there became a mm-hmm. point where I went, huh. So I'm on the easiest job of my career, the middle a TV show, half hour. It was in its seventh year that year. It was, I literally would break down the script on a Monday morning, walk into their office by one or two o'clock in the afternoon, hand them a board. And then I would go in my office and think I was supposed to be doing something. And then like three hours later, the production manager whose office was right next to mine, Mark Movinowitz came in. He goes, why, why are you still here? I'm like, I, I don't, he goes, dude, trust me. You, absolutely could have gone home three hours ago when you handed in the board. This, <laughs> this is going to be the easiest thing you've ever done. So as a result, I started kind of chugging that time that I had available into these other things. But then over the Christmas break comes the drug addict version of my personality, my career. Mm-hmm. I get a text from 
a producer friend of mine that says, are you interested in Morocco, Paris, Rome, and Montreal? Sends it. 15 minutes later, my agent sends the same text. The two of them had been talking. He had a need on the Jack Ryan series. They were replacing somebody. And I took my phone and I put it up to my wife. And I said, and she saw those places and said, "Uh, yes, you are. Which meant I had to leave the project of the middle during the break in order to do that, which was the, in hindsight, in retrospect, it was the wrong thing to do. Hmm. But I did it. And I got to that job and it was not healthy for me. There was a bully in this situation. And I was so verbally abused by this particular bully that I knelt next to the monitor one night at two in the morning and was realizing that this was in Montreal with one guy in a hallway with a gun and he couldn't wrap his mind around the safety concerns that I was bringing up and, and was, I won. I was not, I did not allow him to do something that I thought was unsafe, but the verbal abuse and the, the pressure that was on me from that moment forward, I thought, I'm not going to another country and putting hundreds of guns into people's hands and landing a helicopter and approximating missiles, blowing up guard shacks and doing these things with a guy that I can't communicate how one person with a gun is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I need to write a letter to the studio and explain that, you know, I, I feel that this is a bullying situation. I am not interested in pressing, you know, any kind of human resources issue, but I would like to be replaced because I'm not comfortable going to the next phase of this project with this guy. Of course. of course. Well, two hours later, I stand up and two producers arrive at the set. None of them have been there all day while this verbal tirade is going on. And they were letting me know they were going to replace me. And I said, well, thank you. And they went, what? And I said, yeah, because I was going to write one of the hardest emails of my life. And I don't want to be that guy, but this is not an environment for me. I'm in total agreement. And I apologize that I'm not the guy you thought I was, or I'm not as capable as I thought I was of doing mm-hmm. this, but there's no amount of money and no amount of prestige that is worth feeling like I feel every day coming to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God bless Godspeed. And I moved on. But literally from that moment, I started to have the depression and I started to have all the, oh my God, I'm a failure on this and that. But here I am. I stood up for myself and now it's a bad thing. That's mm-hmm. part of my issues that I'm working out through my therapy and all the things mm-hmm. that I'm doing right now. It's just who I am. And, and it took me a lot of years to be able to admit that. No, but as a result, you. good for you. Yeah. Though. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank no, you. Seriously. I think there's so much in the industry where it's just like, you have to push the hardest, you have to be the best, or you have to climb the ladder or, or, you know, you have to work all of those hours because there's somebody else out there that's going to work those hours in place of you. And so there's yeah. this mindset that there's, uh, there are no boundaries in order to reach the top. And yeah. you get to the end of it and you realize that, you have been carving out pieces of yourself. Yeah, and emptying pre- myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not feeding it. And so mm-hmm. thank you for that. And, and what happened, I'm so glad that that makes sense because that's the con- conveying and the writing this stuff is the hardest part. And that's, mm-hmm. it's not just for people in the industry. It's the reality that we all do this. Mine just happened to have been around Hollywood. So there's mm-hmm. going to be some notables, you know, <laughs> like, but it's, so what ends up happening then is I have this series of events that lead me into this space of doing, and you don't even know that I've been doing this, but I've been working with in-prison education. Oh, working with, yeah, a th- place, working with a place called Defy Ventures. And this is all just me volunteering my time and energy. No, seriously, if I had another lifetime in prison education and juvenile hall is where I would spend my time. Well, there's a yeah. reason that we're connecting right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> there clearly is because I go go online and look at unincarcerated productions. Look at them on on Facebook. Look at them on Instagram. We're we're working right now posting people's perspective from prison of how you might want to try to deal with the isolation of the COVID risk situation we're in right now. And what we are doing as unincarcerated productions is a, well, let me tell you how I got into it first. Cause I can just beam about these guys, mm. Spencer Oberg and, and Vic and Rachel and the folks that I'm involved with in this are just phenomenal human beings. And the way that we've all come together and how this thing continues to build from the moment that I get let go and I come home and I'm facing my depression, a buddy of mine from Nashville, Dustin Hillis calls me and says, Hey man, I'm coming to LA on X date. Well, I just got fired. <laughs> I'm going to be there. And he wanted me to have dinner with him and a woman that runs a, an organization called Liberty in North Korea, Link. And they are essentially a underground railroad that goes through China for people who are escaping <laughs> and gets them education and placed all over the world. Some have been placed here in the United States and gone to school and gotten out and gotten their careers together and, and this whole thing. And I think, oh, this is super interesting. So he, we make the date. I go, I'm, I'm fired. I'm here. Then on the day of the dinner, I get a call from Dustin at about noon and he is weeping on the phone. I'm thinking, are you okay? What is going on, Dustin? And he says, man, you've got to come in and do this. I'm like, what are you talking about? Where are you? Are we having dinner tonight? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm in Pelican Bay, which is a maximum security prison in Southern Oregon, North California. Like it's the most remote maximum security prison he had volunteered with Defy Ventures to go in and judge one of the competitions, which are, they're like a shark tank. Mm-hmm. They can win 500 to 1,000 toward building businesses. They come up with a business plan that will hire felons when they get out. And they actually have launched a number of businesses that will continue to kind of hire folks that have that mark against themselves. Wow. And so he, he had this profound experience and really thought that I needed to be a part of it calls me weeping, explains to me what it is, gives me a phone number, says, you just need to call this number. So I call, and the next crazy thing that happens is that the voice that answered the phone on the other end of the line was a friend of mine named Danielle McMorrin from Nashville as well. And I signed up to go into California City and have my first experience with them. Three days after signing up, I'm in an unrelated business meeting with an experiential studio called The Great Co., another amazing company out here. And we were designing a haunted house for Fox. They were reissuing some classic horror titles. And mm-hmm. we, re- we envisioned a, an event where you could go through and experience scenes from these movies. We created this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so we were having these meetings about it. And the owner of that company asked me, he goes, what are you doing after this meeting? I said, I'm waiting in downtown Los Angeles because it's traffic. He goes, I think you should come with me to this next meeting. I'm going to a place called Me Too. And they wanted me to consider teaching some video courses for them. So I go in and meet the guy. And then around the glass offices on the outside were a lot of really interesting, diverse, large, tattooed, prison-type people, I would say. So I asked Mike, what is going on there? He goes, well, we're hosting the first postgraduate group of Defy Ventures. Hmm. Now, I had never heard of Defy Ventures. Dustin calls me, tells me I need to do it. I make the phone call. Someone I know picks up the phone. Now I'm standing in a completely unrelated space in a span of three days 
and it's Defy Ventures. And I start to cry. He's like, what is up, dude? I said, I was just on the phone with Danielle McMorrin. Yeah, you know Danielle? He goes, well, you know what? Cat Hope, the CEO, is going to be here in two hours, brother. I think you're supposed to be here right now. Wow. And bam, literally three days later, I'm sitting talking with the CEO of this organization and walking down a road that I didn't imagine. Went into the prison, had some ideas. And from there, we actually licensed the Defy curriculum and we created a program up in Washington. All of this is within this year of me saying, I have no idea what's supposed to happen for me. I don't wow. have a job in the movie business. And it just continues that way. And then I jump back into the business and nothing happened for a year. Wow. And I ended up getting my boundaries crossed again and had to literally stop and go, maybe I'm not supposed to be in this business anymore. And then COVID happened. Mm. <laughs> that's a lot. It's like a sip from the fire hose dealing with me, isn't it? <laughs> okay. So is your involvement in the industry something that you see continuing on or the, yeah. the parallel side of things that I definitely see is your passion for education? Yeah. And, and the two seem to be coming together. That's what's so interesting. As we were talking about, my involvement in Washington became pretty intense and I was doing it while working on a couple of shows. And then the organization kind of got itself off to the ground where it was running well and now it's sustaining itself and more people are getting involved. And it's working its way very slowly. It's a very painful process. And I'm still doing TV shows and I'm still doing things. I'm doing 911 season one. I'm doing the Versace. I'm doing those other things, but I'm not feeling it. I'm just getting more and more frustrated with the boundaries that are getting crossed for me. Mm -hmm. And as those things continue to unfold, and I finally put the foot down and just go, I can't do this anymore in this way. Mm -hmm. There's a way that I think it can be done. I'm yeah. not the smartest guy in the room, but I definitely been in this process for a long time. And I think if certain things could change, it might be possible. After I left those shows and a, a, an executive that I've become friendly with over the last 15 years, having worked at Fox for a long time, um, he agreed to have a coffee with me because I just wanted to share with him that it wasn't a personal thing. It was just, you know, that I wanted to make sure that he understood what happened and what I had gone through. So I said, here's what I've learned about myself at 50. I don't need to be in an environment where we're working 16 to 17 hours a day because there's no parameters on a particular personality that is considered the 800 pound gorilla. And I don't like the chaos of this particular project. So I think that there are toxic personalities that I can't be around anymore. And a lot of them seem to be in this kind of running of, of this organization because it just is who you hire. I think there's a place where you have to look at the toxic personalities that you're hiring and try to put together better teams. And I, Sure, you don't know what that looks like for you, but because I've been on those sets for all those years, I know people that if I put certain people together, I have a feeling there would be an amazing experience, but it's more like they just hire a person and throw them all together and expect something good to happen. And that's business. That's mm -hmm. how it happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm an idealist. And as I continued this conversation with him and then started talking about my educational portions, I said, hey, so where does Fox go to get and recruit from college their executives? And he said, we don't. I said, well, isn't that a travesty that you don't have programs that kind of lead toward the kind of job? Consider coming to one of my educational components and see how an executive training program might be able to be made. And, and wouldn't it be interesting if we could do that with crew members as well, like train them mm -hmm. in the efficient ways 
and earmark them because they went to a certain program that we all agree is a great program. Like I guess you could say an unaccredited trade school where correct because or who needs yes. credentials at that point where you correct. just enter the industry and you can do it in accredited space. You mm-hmm. just have to figure out how to, and that's the conversations we're in with Compass College of the Cinematic Arts in Grand Rapids, and because they went, they went as they got into the bachelor program. They went further from the craft and from the actual trade part of it, which is the most important skill to get you in the industry. Then you can utilize all that theory and all those things you've done. So all of this to say that at the end of it, he asked me if I was, had ever considered becoming an executive. Hmm. And I went, no, <laughs> that had not crossed my mind. And we started talking about that. And then it came up to, I would probably be better served by becoming a unit production manager and a line producer first. And so I'm in these conversations with these folks at Fox having also had the education concept and I'm going to continue doing those things, whether I become a UPM or a line producer or an executive at Fox, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I've realized that this is who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm not just an AD that works on a movie set and disappears for months at a time and doesn't know how to have friends. And, and, you know, my family suffers because I obsessively, you know, workaholically work in that Mm -hmm. environment that this is the package of who I am and what I can offer in anywhere. And it gave me a little confidence to go, okay, Fox may not buy it, but somebody will eventually that this is a good idea. There are schools who are already working with me to implement workshops and week long. And I've done a three week undergraduate course that eventually I think that there's going to be a place where that impacts post COVID industry mm-hmm. because there's going to be such a huge need now wrapping it back to kind of yes. that side yeah. of it. Right. That, you know, in the past, we've done strikes. We've known strikes were coming. The writer's strike that happened in 2007. People knew it was coming. And there's this green light to just flood the, the pipeline. So you have tons of stuff. Well, this caught most people by surprise. Yeah. And the result is that right at a time, Fox was bought by Disney. And I, the conversations I was in is, we are going to have opportunity for you very soon because they are going to increase our output by 50% in one year and even more the following year. So that's just Fox. We have so many streaming platforms, so many different opportunities that mm-hmm. they're green lighting yeah. things. And, mm-hmm. and as a result, the, the issues in the industry right now, currently prior to COVID lack of trained staff to conduct the jobs in all the crafts, lack of real estate, studios and and large space. Now that's an easy solve because I've been involved with many practical projects where you don't have a stage. Everything you do is shooting on location and that's all, that's great. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the business is growing so fast that there is a need for larger amounts of stage space. And that's not just the United States. It's all over the world that this is the problem. Mm -hmm. So this is a booming time and is going to get even busier, I believe, after this period. And there's going to be a lot of unqualified people doing the work And as we were talking about also prior to this call, this is going to be a place where they start to look at the reality that a lot of the old equipment that we've been using isn't necessary anymore with LED lights and the, you know, high capacity chips and using low, you know, the sensors can now take less light, but we still lug around our fossil fuels. We still lug around those in because they're jobs, because they're, they're, it's because we've always done it that way and they own all that equipment. But there's, this is going to be a time of liquidation change. Force majeure is going to take a lot of big 800-pound gorillas that think they're the creative masters mm-hmm. out. We are at the precipice of a brand new Wild West in the business and in our culture. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is going to change so many things. Like, what we were talking about before. I mean, just little things like the star trailers that are completely self-sustainable, that, yeah. don't, that don't need Jennies. Echo Lux. Um, look them up. They're amazing. Echo Lux is what they're called. He is amazing what he has done, Andre. Like, the amount of technology that has come from a necessity of e- even just this particular COVID situation, um, but in education, the pl- um, Panoply. Yeah. The previous interview that I did was a professor who did a lot of work on Panoply, and he had connected the dots that said, potentially, this could reduce the amount of people on set. So with your passion in education, with your experience in the industry, where do you see your landscape changing from here and like taking both of those into a post-COVID? Well, I'm super excited about it because I have been grateful to be on the huge projects that I get to be a part of and and how many people are employed and make their living that way. But at the same time, there is an incredible amount of unnecessary waste of Mm -hmm. resources and confusion that happens from that. So I want to see myself as a person that if in fact Fox does open the door for me to unit production manage and and what's beautiful about the way they're talking about that is I'm going to do a little visual aid for you here. (laughs) So the studio hands you this book. And says, these are the people you can hire to rent equipment from. And then the quote comes back and you hand the quote to the studio and they say, we can't pay that. Yet now I'm in the middle, but I can't negotiate. Mm-hmm. The, the unit production managers used to go negotiate. They used to be, the UPM that you hired was the dude that had all the contacts. That's not the case anymore. So I told them that and they said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to give you an accountant. We'll take care of all of that. We want you to be out from behind a desk solving problems. So I hope that for me, post COVID, that I move into hopefully even smaller projects to prove these models. Mm -hmm. Because I just believe there's a more efficient way to work and an enjoyable way to work. And the pressure that I was feeling in those environments on the huge, huge projects and and people operating in fear versus building a team, because I pride myself on trying to build a team and create a cohesive unit where everyone feels responsible for their department and wanting to help the other departments, not the battle, draw the lines. We need more guys. It's taking more money. Yeah. Well, honestly, it's not just the cohesiveness of the team. It's essentially building up a holistic crew member that is mentally healthy in a way that the whole entire nature of the beast could change because people understand boundaries and say, hey, you know what? No, that's not okay. Yeah. Where I am sacrificing so much more of myself. And when you create that base level of mental and emotional health, it's yep. something that can change so much more than just... No, it, it just, is. Yeah. And what's so interesting that you say that is I have been noting that exact change in basically your generation and the generation under you that are coming in the industry where (laughs) when they told us on 911 on a Thursday or a Friday, you're going to be working on Saturday or Sunday. A lot of people just go, okay, that's what we're doing. This younger generation started to teach me like, dude, you're crazy. You just keep doing what they're telling you to do without (laughs) questioning. What is wrong with you? You're a pretty cool guy. You're pretty aware. And you go, Oh, this can change. Mm. So I'm glad that you see that as well because I really believe it's going to take people like you and podcasts like this and, and people that are reaching to toward this industry to hear someone's experience like mine, which mm. I hope comes up very clearly in the book, is what you just 
said is exactly the intention behind what I'm writing is to go just lay it out there warts and all embarrassing things and all that I've stupidly done and go now how does this apply to you in the insurance office how does this apply to you you know working at the hospital you wherever you are we all need those healthy boundaries and at the same time creating a loyalty to the organization that says oh god yeah cover yourself bring somebody Mm -hmm. else in we we love you we want you back but there's such a fear that you're gonna get replaced Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I today am comfortable in saying, I don't care. (laughs) So a lot of what you've been talking about is this post COVID, hopefully this will happen. And this is what I can see happening. So I want to see presently, (laughs) I want to see what your present is looking like. You know, how, how has it affected your day to day? Because I know that a lot of people, a lot of my friends are actually non-union. And so, they aren't being taken care of necessarily. And I don't know, are you being taken care no, of? No, no, they are in advising us on what are possible ways of us being supported through unemployment and all those things, which has always been disastrous for people in the industry who are in the union. Cause I get residuals. It sounds like a big deal. 50 cent, $2, $100 for a big pro, you know, like these checks that come quarterly and those have constantly disrupted unemployment for me to the point where I have just stopped trying to do it. So presently I have worked really hard to be a man that takes the beginning of the day and the end of the day in silence, uh, meditation, let's call it. And I do a real inventorying process at the end of the day of what could I have done better? Did I do something that stepped on someone's toes? Is there something that I need to apologize for just to kind of keep my, my world clean. It's a 12 step program thing that I've learned through my recovery, but I also am writing the migrant film workers anonymous, the 12 steps for the people dumb enough to want to do this for a living, which is just <laughs> this process of being present can help you sleep better at night, be where you are. So I came into this COVID time thinking, Oh, it's going to be amazing. All right, I'll do this. I'll do all these things. And I have these lists and lists and lists. And the only thing that lasted on the list was the book. Now there were scripts. There were all these things that I was going to do. And as each day has unfolded, I'm putting less and less on my plate to get done for something that I think is going to affect after COVID. And I'm being more present to what is happening today in my home with my 19-year-old daughter who's home from college and taking uh, general ed courses online right now. Uh, being available to my wife, who up to this point was an influ- is an influencer. She's got 30,000 followers on a thing called We Are Midlife. And figuring out how she can... Uh, realistically engage in this environment because she's she's got advertisers sending her products that just she goes it's an, it's inappropriate right now the way that i am spending my time in a structured way is a getting out of bed and making it mm-hmm. putting on clothes more days than i don't <laughs> <laughs> showering you know doing all of that regular stuff being been doing yoga and this one hour a day writing group that i'm doing on facebook through anna david and her launch pad is what they're called, this amazing uh, self-publishing group. She teaches educational things toward that. And there's about 15 of us doing that on a daily basis. So I'm learning as, you know, the yoga was becoming the thing and, and the writing was becoming the thing. And then I injured my back picking up a dust buster. <laughs> Literally had a spasm. I haven't had a back problem in, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, haven't had anything. So suddenly I couldn't even do the yoga. So presently, I am working at being present and not obsessively writing 10 hours a day, but spending one hour, and then maybe I'll get an additional hour if it's super inspirational at that point. Then I'm unplugging from my self-centeredness and trying to be available for my daughter if she needs help. College courses, I didn't go, but I'll try to help you any way I can. Cooking, 
maintaining the house, keeping routine, mm. and just being present yeah. and going to have to accept the world that comes out of this when it comes out because we can't, no one knows. It's unprecedented. Exactly. There's, you can sit here and theorize all you want. Exactly. Yeah. We don't even know when. So it's very interesting that you say that because the last two episodes that we've recorded, I remember when I first got into this, I was just like, oh, you know, this is going to be great because we're going to get all these perspectives from people and how it's going to possibly change things in the future. And there is that kind of side of things. But at the same time, after that second one that I recorded, I remember reading a lot of these articles about, you know what, it's okay to not do anything right now. It's okay to not be constantly looking at the future. And it's a very um us thing yes. to overwork and to push 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 and maybe this is coming back to our original conversation about just right. being healthy and making sure that we have a correct perspective on things or a healthy perspective on things and so i was i was curious then with that balance where do you think that it is best for artists to position themselves right now well i really think that especially in 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 the entertainment motion picture television realm and the need for good content there's so much good content out there that's written that doesn't ever get across the table because it's been that closed circled wagons you know small let's call it a boys group whatever the group is you know what i mean but it's it's it seems to have been impenetrable do the good work now. Don't give up on the things that you've written in the past. There's a lot of people available right now. You would probably see that people would more, be more apt to look at things right now. I'm not saying submit things unsolicited, mm -hmm. but the relationships that can be built in a time like this where people are completely isolated and more open is incredible. And the thing that has served me the most creatively and professionally has been the days, times, and relationships I've built with people that have become mentors because I respected their work or respected how they did their work and having had the opportunity to meet them and ask them, how did you get to this perspective? How did you, not how do I become you? Mm -hmm. What have you been through to get to where you are? Mm -hmm. I want to understand that. I'm not asking you for a job. I'm asking you for an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, any creative person who's got somebody that's inspired them, has lit their passion, I would work at trying to just reach out and not be creepy because I have a feeling you might have a chance to, to extend, you know. I think what your previous guests actually said a very similar thing, I, and I thought it was really apropos, the reality of how many people are sitting talent-wise, uh, nothing happening. Mm -hmm. And again, for those of you that are out there that have access to a lawyer or can lawyer-to-lawyer -lawyer submissions work, if you figure out who the lawyer is of a studio or a person that you want to connect with, a lawyer-to-lawyer -lawyer is taken very seriously, just so you know. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like I, I, feel like I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's the nature of a podcast, so that's why I have you on the podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, good. No, but do you have any additional thoughts that you can think of that is pertinent to right now um, that you might have wanted to mention earlier? I don't know. Well, Journey yeah. Well, for me, again, the reality of creatively doing what you're doing, but at the same time, the physical thing, it's really important to move. And, and I didn't over move and hurt my back. I just had some freak thing that caused me to even have to slow down and be even more present, which I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. But the thing that has helped me the most has been 
the way that my wife and I have taken some of our yoga classes together out here in my den. And she takes one sometimes alone in there. I take one, you know, like, like figuring out that it's okay to not have every minute be together and it's okay not to isolate completely and, and ignore the people that are in your life during mm -hmm. this time as well and to stay connected mm -hmm. so finding a really nice balance between what you do emotionally mentally spiritually and physically at this time has been profound for me especially after hurting the back and seeing the ways in which i use people places and things to escape what's really going on in the moment with me mm -hmm. and so now with the back being hurt the last couple of days i've been just doing the writing and doing a lot more just quiet contemplation i haven't the only thing I've voraciously consumed on Netflix has been Ozark, and I only allowed myself to watch two episodes. Well, I talked my wife into three at one time, but we just finished that season. So I'm not even doing what I thought I would do, which is obsessively watching movies. And not like, even you know, Tiger King? Nope. I am actually going to steer clear. You know, I grew up with people like that, and I'm pretty well traumatized by them enough that I'm not sure I need to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm enjoying not seeing it, but knowing a gist of what it is and seeing all the memes and especially the Trump ones. Those are killing me. Have you seen those where the guy was the guy? Oh. Anyway, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm ho I hopefully will make it to my grave with saying I did not watch Tiger King. <laughs> That's the best. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. So if you want to follow along and make sure that you get updates about the potential book that is going to be coming out and you want to be on the lookout for the educational platform that Corey is involved with, you can follow him on Instagram at Migrant Film Worker and also look him up on Facebook and go ahead and mention Colab Inc. or myself and he will engage with you. So don't pass up the opportunity. Don't pass it up. If you enjoyed this interview, follow us right here and on Instagram and check out more episodes at thepracticalfilmmaker.com. If you have comments or questions, feel free to email me, tanya at thepracticalfilmmaker.com or DM me on Insta. Be well and God bless. We'll see you next time on The Practical Filmmaker.